I'll invite you to take your Bibles again to the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 1, and we're going to read from verse 18 to verse 25. Uh, correction on, the, on that, there is no Sunday school this morning. Uh, I imagine it will be picking up in the new year. Yeah. Matthew chapter 1, and we're going to read from verse 18 to verse number 25. And I'm going to invite you, once you find your place, to please stand as we read God's Word together. The Word of God says, Now the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be pregnant by the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, since he was a righteous man, did, what, did not want to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. But when he had thought this over, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you shall call him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place so that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet would be fulfilled. Behold, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they shall name him Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. And Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary as his wife, but kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son, and he named him Jesus. And we trust that God will add blessing to the reading of his word. Loving Father, again, as we open the word of God this morning, we ask, O oh God, for you to speak. Give us ears and hearts and minds to listen, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please have a seat. The last two weeks, we've been considering one simple word from Matthew chapter 1 and verse 1. The word, Christ. Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One. The Old Testament physical anointing with oil simply pictures the spiritual reality of the filling of the Holy Spirit. To be anointed means to be filled with the Holy Spirit. So Jesus is the anointed, Spirit-filled prophet who spoke for God to us and Jesus is the spirit-filled high priest after the order of Melchizedek who represents us to God and who offered himself as the sacrifice for our sin and ever lives now to intercede for us with God the Father. Jesus is, thirdly, the spirit-filled king descended from David who died to deliver us from the problems, our great problems of God's wrath and our sin and who died to deliver us from the enemies that we all continually face. Our Lord Jesus Christ is also the Son in five ways or five aspects, if you like. First and highest, Jesus is the Son of God. It's stated in Matthew 27, 54, and Mark 1, verse 1, and John 11, verse 4, and lots of other places too. Secondly, Jesus is the Son of David, the King over all kings. Thirdly, Jesus is the son of Abraham. We looked at this in those weeks past. He is the source and the means of God's blessing to all the nations. And fourthly, Jesus is the legal son of Joseph by adoption. Jesus is 
the legal but not the physical son of Joseph. And he's called that in Scripture. Luke 3.23, John 1 verse 45, and John 6 and verse 42 describe him that way. Fifthly, Jesus is also the Son of Man. And it's a phrase, a description that Jesus uses of himself uh, some 30 plus times in the book of Matthew, mostly in the latter chapters. And this morning, as we stand on the very brink of yet another Christmas, I want us to consider something of Jesus' sonship, the son who was born at Christmas. He is the son of Joseph, he's the son of man, and as we'll see, he is the son of God. So first of all, Jesus is the son of Joseph, born at Christmas. Now, our text is a narrative text. It's got a plot, it's got characters, it's a story. And that story serves, serves as a vehicle to communicate some great truths to us. Having finished Jesus' genealogy from Abram all the way to Joseph, sorry, Abraham to Jacob in verses 2 to 15, Matthew masterfully connects Joseph to Jesus legally but not physically. In verse 16, Joseph is the husband of Mary by whom Jesus was born who is called the Messiah. It is a story and we have four characters in our story. Although Mary is a main character in Luke's gospel, she's very much a lesser character in Matthew's gospel. Joseph is here an important character, and the angel of the Lord is also an important character in the story. But Jesus, of course, is the central focus of the text. Verse 18 begins, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. And in verse 18, we have a situation but before us. So, First of all, it's a boy-meets-girl plot, isn't it? Mary is betrothed to Joseph. Now, in ancient Near Eastern culture, betrothal is as binding as marriage. Betrothal involved a ceremony. Like we have a wedding ceremony, they had a betrothal ceremony. There was witnesses present. There was vows exchanged. It was a, it was a binding arrangement. Mary was considered from that moment onward to be Joseph's wife, and Joseph was considered from that moment onward to be her husband. Now, they observed a waiting period of not more than one year. Kind of reminds me, Heather and I got engaged in December of 1993 and got married December 1992. I know this. I was there. (laughs) December of 1992 and got married in December of 1993. We waited a whole year between our betrothal and that final marriage ceremony. Well, they waited, but it was, it was customary to wait for a time, and the wife would be at her parents' home. And one day, the great shout, the great news would be announced to all the neighbors and friends, the husband is coming, and everybody would go out to meet him, and they would have a big feast and a big celebration, and that was a marriage ceremony. So finally, Joseph is coming to collect Mary. And no doubt they're both looking forward with great anticipation to that very special day when they will come together in a home and physically. But in verse 18, we also have the problem. Before they came together into the home and physical marriage, she is discovered to be pregnant. And that's a problem. She is considered to have broken her betrothal and marriage vows. Because of those exchanged vows, it was, sorry, The breaking of those exchange vows was and is considered adultery. 
it was punishable by death according to the Old Testament law. Or betrothal could be ended with a bill of divorcement. But both of those circumstances would bring great shame to the woman. And Joseph feels himself to be the wronged party. What should he do? What would you do in a circumstance like that? Well, in verse 19, we have Joseph's search for a solution. He's a godly, righteous man with a heart to always do what's right. But he's also a very kind and a very gracious man. And even though his assumption is that she has been unfaithful to him, he's still concerned that he'd not bring any more shame to her. That is a very gracious and a very kind man, given the circumstances, which serves to help understand Psalm 37 and verse 21. The righteous is gracious and gives. In this case, that's exactly what we see. A righteous man who wants to deal graciously and kindly. So then we have in verse 20 and 21, we have a divine angelic intervention. Joseph falls asleep and an angel of the Lord appears to him in a dream. God is sovereignly intervening in Joseph's life. Notice he identifies Joseph as a son of David, reminding us of the importance of his involvement in, as Jesus' legal father. He instructs Joseph not to fear. Literally, don't be hesitant to take Mary as your wife. There's no reason for him to reject or diverse her. She has done no wrong. She's exonerated as pure and chaste, as he says, because this child's conception is by the Holy Spirit and not by fornication or adultery. And we see from the text that she remains a virgin until after Jesus' birth. The birth announcement, by the way, that Joseph receives is similar to a few others in the Old Testament stories of faith. For example, Ishmael's birth announcement to Hagar in Genesis 16, verse 11. Or Isaac's birth announcement to Abram and Sarah in Genesis chapters 17 and 18. Or even Samson's birth announcement given to Manoah and his wife. But this announcement has a striking difference. This child will save his people from their sins. We said that Joseph, sorry, Jesus is the son of Joseph by adoption. The scriptures call him the son of Joseph. I mentioned those verses, Luke 3.23 and John 1 verse 45 and John 6 and verse 42. Joseph is legally but not physically his adopted father so that there's a purpose here. You notice it happens in the stream of the genealogy. In fact, I came across one ancient textual variant where one sleepy scribe, as he was copying out Matthew chapter 1, rolled along the father of, the father of, and he just kind of put Joseph as the father of Jesus. And it set off red flags as they found it, going, this can't be right because Jesus is not fathered by Joseph like all those other kings and sons were. And the accurate text goes around that, as I showed you earlier. But Joseph is legally the adopt. Sorry, yes, Joseph is legally the adopted father of Jesus. He is to be the legal descendant of David the king, and that ancestry goes through Joseph. Notice Joseph is told, "You shall name him Jesus." Now, in the scriptures, in the old ancient Near Eastern culture. To name a person was to exercise a place of authority in that person's life. 
Joseph was Jesus' legal father to whom Jesus submitted as he was raised by his parents in Nazareth. So God in grace and kindness to protect his infant son has sovereignly intervened in Joseph's life. That sovereign protection, by the way, will be repeated several times in Matthew chapter 1 and 2, warning the Magi, sending the family to Egypt, and so on. But beloved, out of this, I just want to pause for a second. Joseph experienced God's sovereign intervention in his life. And likewise, God sovereignly intervenes in our lives all the time. In Romans 8, 28, the Bible says that we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose purposes. We will never fully understand or appreciate the extent to which God's sovereignty is at work in our lives. And sometimes the means of that sovereignty are pleasant things. And sometimes they're unpleasant things, right? The rest of their lives, because of his birth, Mary and Joseph will bear a stigma associated with a supposed illegitimate birth. 30 plus years later, in the midst of Jesus' ministry, uh, his enemies and his critics are still making snide comments about his birth and his father's identity. You can read about it in the Gospel of John. But God's sovereignty is at work. God's sovereignty is at work in all our lives all the time for God's glory and for our greater good through the pleasant events and even or I would say especially through the unpleasant events. God is at work. So Christian, this morning, be encouraged. Difficult times are not an indicator that God has forgotten you or is angry with you. Rather, more often than not, they are reminders of God's love for you to shape you into Christ's image. Uh, It's an old adage in the carpenter shop where I spent so many years. A sharp tool does great work, far better than a dull tool. And sometimes those sharp tools that God uses in our life, sickness, financial struggle, heartaches, all sorts of things. I couldn't list them all. And they're sharp tools that God is using in all of our lives to shape us and make us more into the image of Christ. Don't make the assumption That God is angry with you because you're going through difficult times. Quite the opposite. It is more proof that God is loving you and shaping you and working in your life to make you like him. Well, back to our text. Back in verses 22 and 23, we have Matthew's own explanation from Scripture, from an Old Testament text, a a fulfillment of prophecy from Isaiah 7 and verse 14. One of Matthew's many goals in writing his gospel is to continually present Jesus Christ to Jew and Gentile as the fulfillment of Old Testament promises. She, Mary, is the promised virgin who is with child, and she will bear the promised son. And they, will, they, his true people, will call him Emmanuel, God with us. What I want us to notice now, the next little while, is these two great truths. First, by the angel of the Lord's words, Jesus is presented to us as the child conceived in Mary's womb. 
The child Mary will bear, the child she will give birth to, and the child that Joseph will name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. This child, who is truly man, he is the Son of Man. Jesus is the Son of Man born to save his people. The second great truth is this, and you see it in Matthew's commentary in verses 22 and 23. The child presented is a fulfillment of Old Testament promise, prophecy and promises. He is the son of the virgin promised in Isaiah 7. He is to be called Emmanuel, God with us. And what Matthew is doing in that statement, just a little time out for a sec. Learn to read your Bible slowly. It sounds maybe, maybe a little bit more obvious than it, maybe it should, but how often do we do it, right? Pick up our Bible, you know, Matthew, Genesis, Genesis, done, right? Or we're, we're in a hurry in the morning to get through our Bible reading and we just kind of move quickly over the pages. Maybe you're like me a little bit unwisely for a while. I used to listen to my Bible reading on my phone and, and follow along on my Bible and it was the guy reads a lot slower than I do. So I, I cranked it up to one and a half speed. So he's like a little chirping pigeon reading the Bible. And you know what? You miss tons of stuff. You really do. And one of the greatest statements in all of existence happens in this verse. God with us. Take some time this afternoon. Take some time as you're enjoying your Christmas dinner. Take some time tomorrow to stop and meditate on that one great truth. God with us. It'll blow your mind away. Stop and realize that the infinite God of all the ages, almighty in power, all-knowing, unchangeable, the heaven of heavens cannot contain him. And, and they write, he's with us. I wonder what Joseph thought as he sat there, maybe knelt on the floor of the, the barn. And he's holding this little tiny squirming pink child in his hand and remembering the angel's words or maybe remembering the prophecy, God with us. How that must have struck him. Listen, Jesus is the Son of God to be with his people. It's interesting that like two bookends to Matthew's gospel are two statements regarding Jesus' divine identity. In Matthew 1 verse 23, Matthew calls him Emmanuel, God with us. In Matthew 27 and verse 54, at the very end, after his death on the cross, while he's still hanging on the cross, the centurion declares, truly, this was the Son of God. Even Jesus himself in Matthew 26 and verse 64, he concedes to the high priest charged to him that he is indeed the son of the living God. Jesus is the son of God to be with his people. So let's consider those. Secondly, second main point is this, the son of man born at Christmas. Why is it so important that Jesus be truly human? And we said two weeks ago, for one example, that Jesus, to be our great high priest, had to be truly man to truly represent us to God. In addition to that, what Jesus accomplished on our behalf required him to be truly human. Jesus' humanity was necessary. It wasn't an optional extra. It was vitally necessary to all that he accomplished. In Romans chapter 5, verses 12 to 19, it was necessary for Jesus to be truly man because by the man Jesus' obedience, the many were made righteous. 
So as truly man, Jesus perfectly obeyed his Father. And because he was perfectly representing his people to God, his perfect obedience can become our perfect obedience as we trust in him and he applies his righteous obedience to us. By the man, Jesus' obedience, many are made righteous. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 21 and verse 45, and Philippians 3, verses 20 and 21, all those verse references are on a little pink sheet that you got in the way in. It was necessary for Jesus to be truly man because it is the man, Jesus, who gives us the gift of resurrection. Jesus is not just a ghostly image of a man. He's not an apparition. He has a physical body. He's truly man. He's truly suffered and truly bled and truly died. He was buried. When they took him down from the cross, I don't know how many of you have ever had the, the dubious privilege of seeing a dead body. Uh, for me, being in the hospital when one of our dear sisters passed away, it was kind of a jarring moment. That's the first time I'd really seen up close without being presented in a, in a casket, a dead body. It, it, it kind of left me a little bit off put, you know? And I mean, it was re, like revulsion. It just wasn't what I expected. When they took Jesus down from the cross, they pried the nails out of his hands, and slowly, carefully lowered his body down, he would have been awkward and grotesque and weird. No other word for it. He died. His body was dead just as surely as every other body in the, the, the morgue is. He was buried. He died and he was buried and he rose again. He was resurrected as truly man. And so he's able to give us the gift of resurrection because of it. In Hebrews 2.18 and 4.15 down to 5 and verse 10, it was necessary for Jesus to be truly man so that he can help us in our trials and needs with understanding and mercy and grace to help us. And we're going to see this more in just a moment. So we'll come back to this one. In Philippians 2, verses 5 to 8, and 1 Peter 2, verses 21 to 25, it was necessary for Jesus to be truly man so he could set an example for us that we, by faith and obedience to him, can follow that example. It was vitally necessary for Jesus to be truly human to accomplish all his earthly work and ministry. So Jesus' humanity was necessary. It was also real. It was absolutely authentic. Jesus is truly, authentically human, but without a sin nature. In John chapter 1 and verse 14, the Bible tells us that Jesus assumed a sinless human nature like Adam's at creation. He is indeed called the last Adam in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 45. There was a body prepared for him. It was conceived like every other human body, only by the Holy Spirit, not by any human male. He grew in the womb like every one of us. He was born the usual way. He grew and developed from Luke 2, verses 6 to 7. So from infancy to youth to manhood, albeit in obscurity, he grew and developed. He experienced genuine human life and growth, yet without a sin nature, which is an absolutely crucial difference. 
In 1 John 1, verses 1 to 4, John writes about Jesus and said that he had a physical human body. The disciples heard his physical voice. They saw his physical form. They touched his physical body, and they testified to the truth of Jesus' Jesus' humanity. In Matthew 26 and verse 38, he says, My soul is grieved and troubled. I'm sorrowful. Jesus had a real human soul, like just like we do. So the evidence for the reality of Jesus' humanity is overwhelming. But Jesus also truly experienced humanity, but without sin. Some would say, oh, well, you know, if he didn't understand sin, he didn't have sin, he wasn't really human. Well, that's a totally backwards understanding of humanity. Sin is not what makes humanity more human. Sin is the corruption and degrading of humanity the way that God designed and created us. What makes Jesus, what made him so confronting and so difficult for sinful people to be around was that his very presence without a sin nature as truly God and truly man was so convicting to all that love their sin that they either fled away from him or they fell at his feet and pleaded for him to leave. That's who he was. Jesus experienced humanity without sin. He experienced it to be an example to us. We're called to be followers of Jesus Christ. Right? Amen. We are. We're to follow the example he set. A life of devotion to God that he lived. He did so as truly man to set us an example that we can follow. When he got up early in the morning in Mark chapter 1 and went off in a lonely place to pray by himself, he had spent the entire previous day doing all sorts of ministry, healing the sick and all kinds of things, preaching and teaching. And he got up early in the morning while it's still dark. And I think he just kind of stepped over all the disciples sleeping in the hallways of the little house. And he went off in a lonely place by himself to pray. Do you think he felt tired? I'm convinced he did because he was truly human but he had a devotion to God that he set the example for us to follow the prayer life he practiced he did so as truly man to leave us an example to follow the selfless ministry he exercised he did so as truly man so we can see how it's to be done The way he spoke the truth in grace, he never sacrificed one for the ever. He never spoke truth without grace, and he never exercised grace without truth. They were always perfectly together. He did so as truly man that we, his followers, might look and see him who is truly man and truly God and follow that example. The way he reached out to the unloved and the rejected and despised to love and care for them. He did so as truly man so we would see his example and follow him. The death he endured without reviling or cursing or threatening. He did so as truly man setting an example for us so that when our time to suffer comes that we would have an example to look to and follow. Beloved brother and sister, listen. We who are saved, believing the gospel, repenting of sin, filled with the Spirit, can look to Jesus and see in him our example for exactly how we are called and equipped to live. The problem is, I think for a lot of us, salvation is just 
It happens, we're saved, we're going to heaven, we just forget the rest and go and live any way we choose. Well, that's not genuine salvation. It's not genuine conversion, and you have reason to doubt the reality of your salvation. Listen, because he's truly man, Jesus is available and a comfort, as a comfort and a help to us. We can cry out to Jesus for his help, knowing that not only he can help us, but that he understands the very things in which we need help. Jesus is our advocate, right? We talked about that. He's like a lawyer interceding and pleading our case for us with God. So many lawyers go and defend their clients and they have no idea what the life of their client is really like. They don't understand any of the circumstances and pressures that their client might have faced in the circumstances in which they acted that got them in trouble with the law. But the reality is our Lord Jesus Christ understands because he has experienced humanity in many of the ways that we do. He without sin, we with sin. Jesus understands our tiredness, our weariness. Because in John 4, verse 6, the Bible says he was tired and weary. Jesus understands our temptations because the Bible tells us in Matthew 4, and verse 1, that he himself was tempted just as we are, but in his case, without the possibility of sin. Jesus understands our loneliness. I think it was back in the 1950s that New York City, which was, I I think at that time, one of the biggest cities in the world, was described as the lonely city. Isn't that interesting? A city jam-packed full of people described as lonely. One of the things you come across when you're in ministry for a little while is how many people are lonely. You think, nobody understands my situation. Nobody understands what it's like to be me in a lonely, lonely situation. The reality is Jesus understands our loneliness. Because in Matthew 27 and verse 46, in in relating Psalm 22, on the cross, he knew utter loneliness and abandonment. You know what the wonderful thing about all this is? We're relating to a Savior who understands us, who knows what it's like to go through these things, who understands them, in some cases, in a, in a degree far beyond what we understand. We understand temptation to a point because what we mostly do is we get to a certain point and then we give in, right? Jesus understood temptation to the utter extreme because he never gave in. Jesus understands our griefs and our sorrows. Christian, if you go to bed at night and you lay your head on the pillow and you begin to cry, brokenhearted and discouraged, weary with sorrows that just seem to mount up on top of you, Brother and sister in Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ understands your sorrows. He is one who was sorrowful even to the point of death. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. A wonderful hope for us as Christians as we go through this life, it's not that this Christian life gets us out of all those difficulties and sorrows and troubles, is that we go through them with a Savior who understands, who is walking, with, through, walking through them with us. He is available to help us to put his arm around our shoulders and carry us through. All we have to do is lean on him. What a savior we have. 
Jesus understands our physical pain and sufferings because in Matthew 27, he suffered and endured the pain of torture beyond anything I think anybody in our context could even come close to understanding. Being scourged is something that no human movie producer could put on a screen. It's way beyond what you saw in The Passion if you saw it. He understands and he is available to come and help. He experienced humanity. His humanity was necessary. It was real. It was experienced. And his humanity had a purpose. Joseph was told to call the child's name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Jesus in Greek is a transliteration of the Hebrew Jehoshua, and it means God is salvation. He came as truly man to save his people from their sins. But why do we need a savior? I mean, why are Christians always banging on about you got to be saved? You might have wondered that. Maybe you're sitting here and you don't know what it means to be saved. Well, let me help you understand. Because even though mankind was created in the image and likeness of God and was never intended to become sinners disobeying God, our creator, Romans 3 and verses 10 to 12 and verse 23 tell us that we have all disobeyed, we have all sinned and gone our own way. Which part of all do you not belong to? No part of it. You're in. We're all in this together. Right, except for the Lord Jesus and Adam before he fell. He didn't have a sin nature back then, but the Lord Jesus didn't have a sin nature and never sinned. But all of us have sinned and gone our own way. And the Bible tells us in Romans 1, 18 and 19, that God is angry with us for our sin and disobedience to him. And the Bible tells us in Matthew 25, verses 31 to 41, that God in perfect justice will condemn all sinners to an unending hell because our sin breaks his law and incurs a death penalty. But here's the great news. Why do we call it the gospel? Because it's good news. Why is it such good news? Because the bad news is so bad, but the good news is so great. Listen, in Romans 5, verses 7 to 8, and 1 John 3, verse 1, tell us that God loves the world with an indescribable, unfathomable love. My friend... You have never experienced love until you've experienced the love of God in Christ Jesus. Oh, but I have a great marriage. You have never experienced love until you've experienced love, God's love in Christ Jesus. In love, God sent his son to be the savior of the world in order to save and rescue his people from their sin. Jesus had to be born truly man that he might take our sins upon himself. Literally in 1 Peter 2.24, it says he took our sins in his own body on the cross. And 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 21 tells us that he who knew no sin was made to be sin on our behalf so we might become the righteousness of God in him. He endured all of God's righteous indignation at us for our sin in his own suffering on the cross, which he suffered as truly man. He had to become truly man to truly save us. And he calls us now every single one of us, to repent of sin and believe the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. So my beloved friends, before I go on, have you, are you, 
Are you repenting of sin, turning away from it, wanting nothing more to do it? Are you believing the gospel? There is no other way to be saved from the wrath of God. There's no other name given whereby we might be saved. It's the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and faith in him. Faith in that name. Do you believe it? No, really, do you? So Jesus was born at Christmas, the legal son of Joseph and heir to David's throne as the son of man to save his people from their sins. And thirdly, Jesus is the son of God come to be with his people. Let's read again. Uh, take your Bibles up and read uh, with me first or Matthew 1, verses 20 to 23. We read there that Joseph, but when he had thought this over, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you shall name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place so that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet would be fulfilled. Behold, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they shall name him Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit. He's called Emmanuel, God with us, one of, if not the greatest truth ever written or ever spoken. In John 1 verse 14, the word became flesh and literally tabernacle, that's what the word means, tabernacled amongst us. In Hebrews 1, verses 1 and 2, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets, in many portions, in many ways, in these last days, he has spoken to us in his son, or literally in son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. God went so much further as so much greater than just sending prophets and priests and kings to speak to us. God came in the flesh and dwelt among us abiding with us. I don't, I don't know that, I mean, up until Friday, I don't think I'd really fully understood and grasped what that word means, with us. If you're struggling in your faith, if you're like Joseph this morning, you're wrestling with a great quandary. What am I going to do in this terrible, difficult, awkward, uncomfortable situation. Listen, if you're wrestling with the unpleasant events of God's sovereign intervention in your life, listen to the greatest reassurance I could ever give you. He is with you, Christian. He's with you. So what does the presence of God the Son with us look like? In his earthly ministry, he was with them physically walking and talking and preaching the truth and healing the sick, cleansing lepers and raising the dead. Now he is with us in the person of his indwelling Holy Spirit. You, you, you never leave his presence if you're a Christian. He is with you all the time. Every place you go, everything you say, everything you do. He is with you. There is no escaping. I'll give you some examples of, of what that looks like. 
I didn't put all the verse references down because it would have taken two sheets, but here we go. In Matthew 4, verse 23, he is with the sick to heal them, whether in a moment, over time, or through death. In Matthew 4, verse 24, he is with the demon possessed to free them. In Matthew 5, and verse 3, he is with the poor in spirit to bless them. Stop. He's with the poor in spirit, the ones who are meek and lowly. Remember that, that, that beautiful picture in the, in the prophet Isaiah? A burning wick or a, literally a smoldering wick. You ever blow out a candle and the very top is a little tiny, tiny little glowing dot? Jesus doesn't go and snuff it out. Literally, he coaxes it back to life by gently breathing on it. A bent reed, like a bent grass blade. I walk over my grass and stomp it all down, right? I finally figured out, if you just mow all the weeds down to the same level as the grass from a distance, it all looks like grass. Then I go down and stomp it all down. Jesus doesn't do that. With those poor in spirit, he leans down and he gently coaxes life. He's with you. Matthew 5 and verse 4, he's with those who mourn over sin. I don't know when the last time was that your sin got such a grip on you that you just began to weep. And your heart was so broken that once again you had done the wrong thing. You had denied the Savior with your actions. You have denied him with your words or the lack of them. And you were broken and began to weep over them. Christian, he is with you as you mourn over your sin. Matthew 5 and verse 5 is with the meek to give them the earth. In Matthew 5 and verse 6, he is with those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And in that beatitude, Jesus says, they'll be satisfied. How is it that he satisfies those who are hungering and thirsting for righteousness? He gives them his own. He's with us. That ought to radically change our whole lives. For Joseph and Mary, it changed their lives, absolutely. For those 12 disciples who called, were called and responded in obedience and followed Jesus, it radically changed their lives. All but one died a violent death, and not a nice violent death, horrific violent deaths. All of them died for their testimony that Jesus truly is who he claimed to be, except for Judas, of course. He's with those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. He's with the merciful to show them mercy. He's with the pure in heart to reveal God to them. He, in Matthew 5, verse 9, he's with the peacemakers to call them sons of God. In Matthew 5, and verse 10, he's with those who are reviled and persecuted for his sake and for righteousness' sake. When they begin to mock you and taunt you and throw all kinds of insults against you, you stupid Christian... And you feel that sting. The reality is that he is with us. Right beside us, inside us, indwelling in the Holy Spirit. He's with us to carry us through. Listen, Jesus didn't just come to be a cute baby at Christmas so we could all give gifts and and, and stuff ourselves full of turkey and, and all the rest of the good stuff. Jesus didn't just come to make, you know, bad people good he came to make dead people to live and he doesn't just come and go away again he came to remain with us 
It hit me again on the Friday, just sitting there thinking about, wow, he's with us. Every step of the way, he's with us when we're reviled and persecuted for his sake. In Matthew 6, verses 25 to 34, he is with the anxious to remove their anxiety and reassure them. You suffer from anxiety. It seems to be the plague of our day. I hear about it over and over and over again. He is with us, brother and sister, to relieve and remove that anxiety. To repeat the advice of a dear godly sister, bundle up those anxieties and give them to the Lord, to which I add, for goodness sake, leave them with the Lord. He's with us to remove those anxieties in Matthew 8, he was with the lepers to cleanse them. In Matthew 8, again, he was with the disease to cure them. In Matthew 14 and 15, he was with the hungry to feed them. In Matthew 12, he was with the crippled to restore them. In Matthew 18, he is with lost sinners to seek and to save them. In Matthew 27 and verse 38, he was with two thieves in his death to save the one who repented and believed in him. That just makes my head spin on the cross, enduring unspeakable agony, enduring the rejection and the mocking and taunting of his fellow people, enduring the abandonment of his disciples, and in a short time, the abandonment of his Father in heaven. Jesus takes time to stop and speak to one on the cross beside him and make him a promise of life. And that dear man died knowing where he was going. In verse uh, Matthew 27, he was with the rich in his burial. In Matthew 28, he was with the disciples after his resurrection. But that's not all. He is with all who believe the gospel and repent of sin. He promises never to leave us nor to forsake us. And God who cannot lie did not lie then. You trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior? He's with you. Even if I may add, in the times that we maybe wish he wasn't with us. When we open our mouths a little too quickly or respond a little too harshly to something, he's with us. He promises never to leave nor to forsake. He's gone to be with his Father in his physical person to intercede for us, and he has sent his Holy Spirit to be with us until he physically returns in power and glory to take us to himself, to be with him for all eternity. That picture of betrothal, you get it? It's a picture of Jesus and his people. We are the bride of Christ, right? We're betrothed. We all, if we're married, you have a wedding ring, but proves to everybody around you, you belong to somebody. We have the Holy Spirit in us like a wedding ring that shows everybody around us we belong to Jesus Christ. He is gone for a time, but he is coming again soon to take us to be with himself, and we will be with him for all eternity. That's cool. I love the way God uses beautiful imagery like that all through the Bible to convey his love and his grace and his mercy to us. I'll say it again. Arguably the greatest truth ever spoken or written, he is Emmanuel, God with us. He's with us. He's with those who know and love 
and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior. If you do not trust in Christ as your Savior, that truth is not for you. In fact, the severest of the opposite truth may be true for you unless you turn and repent. Because if you do not believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, he is not with you now. And in a day to come, he will, will say, depart from me, I never knew you. So as we wrap this up on this Christmas Eve morning, the question I have is, do you believe it? Do you believe that the Lord Jesus became truly man to die for you? That you might have life and have it more abundantly. To go back and finish up with Joseph, there was a dilemma he faced. There was the angel's intervention, and he understood it. What would he do now? He had that information given to him. He woke up from his dream. He knew that God had spoken to him. The question now remained, what would he do? And you know, he did exactly as I hope we all will do. He woke from the dream and he obeyed the word of the Lord. He did all that the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took Mary as his wife. He kept her as a virgin until she gave birth to the son and he called the child Jesus. And every time he spoke the name, he would be reminded the one who will save us from our sins. Brother and sister in Christ, preaching the gospel is like that proverbial horse in water. I can drag a church in here and I can make you sit and I can make you sit for a couple more hours and just keep preaching at you and hammering away at you. But I cannot make you believe. That is something that you and the work of the Spirit of God in you alone can do. All I can do is point you to Jesus and say, this is the one. Christian, whatever you're struggling with, and the struggles are wide and diverse, I get that. The great hope that I give you this day that the Scriptures give us is He is with us. Nothing we endure, we endure on our own. Lean on him. Rest your heart and your soul. Rest those troubles in his faithful care. He loves you and he cares for you and he's walking beside you. It's, it's in a way, this is a poor illustration, but it's the best one that comes to mind on short notice. It's like a little child, a little tiny guy can, you know, just able to walk. Maybe little Daniel is a good illustration. And walking beside Daniel is Arnold Schwarzenegger in his full strong ability and little Daniel's got a great big steel plate and he's carrying it along and Arnold goes I'll carry it for you and little Daniel no 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 I'll carry it and Arnold says look I can handle it I'll carry it for you and little Daniel says no 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 no, no. are we being Daniel Something, someone infinitely stronger than Arnold Schwarzenegger is walking beside us and in us. And I am convinced one of the reasons why anxiety in particular is such a problem is we're like little Daniel. 
we, we're more comfortable holding our anxieties than giving them up and giving them to Christ. What a great Savior we have. Oh, he's easy and wonderful. Would you stand with me? We're going to close in prayer. Can we do the benediction, the song? Can you play benediction for us? Yeah. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, again, we just come before you and we bow in worship. Those opening words, Lord, come ringing back around. There is no one like you. No God so great as the Lord our God. Infinite and eternal in your power, your wisdom, your majesty, your righteousness, your holiness, your justice, your truth unchangeable, God most high. And Father, the, the, the writer of Scripture would say that the whole of the heavens cannot contain you. And yet, in order to save your people and to be with us, you humbled yourself and condescended to become a tiny baby born not in the most luxurious of bed in the richest of palaces, but in a barn, and placed in a manger. Father, we give thanks. We praise you, O God, our God, for the Lord Jesus Christ, who was willing to live and walk his life in this world, rejected, despised, mocked, jeered, ignored, abandoned. Yet he did it. He endured it all that he might save us from your wrath and from our sin. Father, we cry out to you this morning for every believer in this room. Lord God, I cry out to you and I ask, O oh God, that you would work in our hearts. Help us to see the reality of God with us, the Spirit of God in us. Father, for those who do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, I cry out to you, O oh God, that you'd open their eyes to see the truth of a Savior. See the one that loved them. Loved him to the point of death, the death that we all deserved. Father, do your work in us as a church, I pray and I plead with you. And we ask these things, O oh God, in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Let's sing the benediction, please.